welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today on the show, I have Chris Sabat, General Counsel of Macmillan Estate Planning. I brought Chris on specifically to talk about a deeper dive into estate freezes. We've covered estate freezes in the past, but specifically today, we're going to go over a little bit more around the thinking and the mechanics of how you execute an estate freeze and why. And with that, here's my interview with Chris. Chris, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me on the show. And thank you also, Chris. Originally, I had you booked to talk about built C208. I had accidentally double booked that topic. So I appreciate your adaptability and the ability to turn on a dime and, and cover another topic I've been needing to cover. So uh, thank you so much for that. I'm happy to help. So Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do. Sure. Well, you know, as my title suggests, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I work with a, a team of lawyers and accountants, financial planners, estate planners at Macmillan Estate Planning Company here in Calgary. Primarily, Macmillan serves entrepreneurial families throughout Western Canada. And what's unique about Macmillan from my perspective is that all of the various professionals, and when we talk about something like an estate freeze, various professionals need to be involved, accountants, lawyers, experts in things like business succession, and so on. All of those individuals have been brought under under one roof. And so the advantage of that, from my perspective, is it's not the sort of situation where maybe a client identifies or maybe hears something about the concept of an estate freeze and how that might be advantageous. It's not a situation where they find themselves going to their accountant, having a discussion, getting some advice, taking that advice and trying to interpret that advice for their lawyer. And unfortunately, what what sometimes happens in this context with things like estate freezes is that clients find themselves sort of going from professional to professional and trying to interpret or translate that advice for themselves. And so that's what's kind of unique from my perspective about Macmillan is, is that all of those experts have been brought under one roof. And I think it really helps to facilitate a, a positive result in relation to something like an estate freeze. So it's funny. I, I always say that part of my value proposition to business owners is just I'll translate lawyer to, to English for you. And more often than not, at least a bit of a chuckle. But yes, that exact experience of their left. We all in our own industries get caught up in jargon and our level of what we consider based proficiency or based understanding. But that's not what the average person thinks sometimes. It's, it's easy for us to get carried away. And sometimes just having that translated into something very simple is very is very powerful. So with that, let's start off with a very simple translation. What is an estate freeze and why should anyone consider doing one? So an estate freeze, you know, simply put, from the perspective of sort of Revenue Canada, taxation of your estate, what you're doing is you are freezing the tax liability that will be imposed upon you upon your passing and transferring that value, deferring that taxation into the hands of your children or, or successive generations. And so the idea is, that in a nutshell, is we want to stop the increased taxation of your estate while still providing you with access to that value, should you happen to need it. So, you know, as a general rule of thumb, once the value of a business or once a family's assets maybe reach that sort of three to $4 million mark, 
you start to get to a place where things like estate freezes work for the family. So, you know, if you've built an estate, let's just assume it's a business, it's valued at $4 million. Ultimately, when, when both spouses pass away, you can expect a tax bill somewhere around the million dollar mark, that 24% of mm-hmm. that value of the business. So the, the question is, as that business grows from say 4 million to 10 million, do you want to continue to increase the capital gains that will be paid by your estate? And generally speaking, the answer is no. So what we can facilitate is that business can grow from say $4 million to $10 million and the tax liability on passing doesn't change. It's still that million dollars. And that's the whole point behind an estate freeze. Often the question is, is that's asked of me is, well, why does Revenue Canada permit this? And this isn't something that's particularly aggressive or anything like that from a tax planning perspective. And and the thought is that Revenue Canada recognizes that with things like the succession of a business, one of the challenges is the tax bill that comes about on passing. And so this can be a way to help transfer or to ensure successful succession of a business within a family. Absolutely. So in a nutshell, bottom line is we are stopping the growth in one person's name and passing it on to another generation's name. But that said, it doesn't, you don't have to wait until the point where you do have a tax bill. This can be done in advance of one. It can be done when the capital gains exemption right now in small businesses, correct me if I'm wrong, somewhere around 860, roughly 860,000, increasing to 1 million slowly over time. So if you're in a situation whereby the sale of your business and your business can continue to grow, is already worth more than that, at least the gain is worth more than that, then it could be worth considering. Of course, the more the bigger numbers, the, the more worthwhile it is, right? Okay. So basically, I'm guessing in most cases, the conversation on estate freezes typically gets started probably by the accountant or the advisor. And of course, then the lawyers get roped into it. So talk to me about what kind of the first steps or requirements that to be brought to the table in an estate freeze are. Sure. And, and just, just sort of before we jump into that, you know, one, one thing that's probably worth mentioning is that an estate freeze can be used in relation to really a, a wide variety of assets. You know, it can even be used for things like publicly traded securities or investment accounts. It's not necessarily just restricted to the use of the transfer of shares or the freezing of the value of a corporation or a qualified small business. So it can be used in many different contexts. Generally speaking, that kind of first level of an estate freeze, it's about limiting capital gains on passing. And then where it really becomes powerful in particular is when you have something like like shares of a qualified uh, small business corporation. And there we can utilize things like family trusts, multiply lifetime capital gains exemptions. We can really create value or at least minimize the taxation that's going to be imposed upon events like the sale of a business, for example. And so when we get to what are the steps, you know, the first step is we have to have a value, right? Whether it's an investment account, that's the subject of the freeze, whether it's a real estate portfolio that contains, you know, primarily passive assets or whether or not it's an active company, you know, qualified small business corporation, we need to have some sort of valuation. So sometimes it's a case of we go out and we look at the real estate, we do a valuation of that real estate. And let's, let's assume that the value of the real estate is four and a half million dollars. Well, that becomes your freeze point. Okay. And so what happens is we take the common shares that are maybe in mom and dad's hands and we swap those for preferred shares. And so mom and dad give up their common shares that typically increase in value as the value of the company grows. And they take back preferred shares that have that fixed value of four and a half million dollars. And so that the net effect of that is that we've now frozen the capital gains in mom and dad's hands. 
And now the question is, well, where do those common shares go? Typically, what we see is the common shares, the common shares are given to the children or the children subscribe to those common shares or a family trust maybe subscribes to those family shares. And so that's where the growth in value of the corporation happens as the real estate portfolio or as the company grows in value, it's those common shares that increase in value going forward. So it's outside of mom and dad's personal estate. Yeah. So a couple of things to unpack there, but before we get there, just one thing I want to clarify for anyone listening is that the freezing of this and passing on of common shares, that's a passing on of value. That's not necessarily a passing on of control. That's a point that often scares some people. It's like, wait a minute, are my kids suddenly in charge of the company? You're absolutely right. And that's an interesting issue and a common concern for most families is, is this like, look, I've built this, it's mine, I want to have access to the value and I want to be in control. I find generally speaking, entrepreneurial families don't want to give up control. They always want to have some, you know, some control over, over the business and its, its, its future going forward. So absolutely, this whole exercise can be performed with mom and dad still having control over the organization, over the corporation. Mom and dad can be in control of the family trust if that's, that's the entity that subscribes to the gross shares, to the future value. And mom and dad can actually have access to some of that value as well. So maybe initially mom and dad are thinking, hey, look, this four and a half million dollars of preferred shares that that I now hold, plus my other personal assets, that's more than enough that more than enough for us going forward in the future. And then suddenly there's a, a change in circumstances. Well, they can actually access some of that that value, some of that growth going forward in the corporation. So it's quite appealing from that perspective. So let's talk about the mechanism for how those get frozen. So you said exchange of common shares for preferred shares that are fixed value. So what part of the tax code is being used there and why is this permissible? That is a great question. At the end of the day, what we have is just a, a share exchange provision. So it depends on the nature of the assets as far as the particular provisions of the Income Tax Act. You know, sometimes what we're doing is we're actually rolling assets into a corporation, doing the freeze at that point, and then taking back the, the preferred shares. But other times what we have is we have we may have a corporation, it may just have common shares, we're reissuing new classes of shares, and then the exchange happens at, at that point. It varies a little bit depending on the nature of the assets, the structure of the corporation that we might be having to might happen to be dealing with that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, the, the results all the same. Mom and dad end up with preferred shares in their hands, and that's the value of those shares equates to the value of the company at the moment of the freeze. Yeah. So there's a couple of provisions under the task code, section 85, which allows us to roll over assets. There's others like 511, which allows us to exchange. But these are all recognized under the tax code as being non-taxable events. They're, ta- they're, they're basically tax-deferred events. So the gain is still there, but at no point is it triggered as part of this, as long as the proper filings are done. So lawyers on the lawyers on the accounts to make sure that happens. So we've established that we've frozen the share value. We've got an evaluator in. We've done whatever section rollover is necessary in order to get this done. Now we're on to, okay, the new shares. So you mentioned two options. You had either held by the next generation or held by a family trust. Care to talk about the positive and negatives of both those strategies? Yeah, absolutely. So a huge negative around the transfer or the direct transfer, or I guess if I, if I were to describe it correctly, having the children as individuals subscribe to the growth shares a huge downside of that is that then the children actually own the shares, okay? And if the children own the shares, that means mom and dad can't be in control, right? They no longer own or have control over those shares in any way. And so I certainly have come across instances where other firms have have done this sort of a transaction for families, and there's been a bit of falling out between mom and dad. 
and the children. And they then find themselves in a situation where it's like, how do I get control back over this situation where the children now hold the gross shares in the company? And, and there really aren't many options. And so from that perspective, I'm not a big fan of a transfer of the shares to the children or a subscription by the children to the shares themselves. You know, my, my preference is what you look at is utilize something like a family trust. The family trust then owns all of the common shares, the gross shares going forward in the future. And what we can do is we can pick the trustees that will manage those shares. And that gives mom and dad a lot of control because what, the, what mom and dad can do is they can say, well, look, we're going to be the trustees. And so we will decide how those sharehold or the rights associated with those shares are exercised. It also allows mom and dad to think about things like, okay, well, you know, our daughter or our son, they're not particularly good with managing money. I don't particularly like their spouse and I'm worried about their influence on, on our children and by extension on the corporation or on the shares. So we can pick then or set in place a process by which succession over the management of the trust is is managed. So that's that's the mechanism by which we leave mom and dad in control. So mom and dad, you know, with a with a, a broadly a, a trust with a lot of discretion, mom and dad can decide if, when, and who out of the family receive value and in what amount. And so that leaves mom and dad in control. If they want to push the value back to themselves, they can do that. If they want to distribute or treat the children or different generations of the family differently, they have that flexibility as well. So from that perspective, it, it works quite well. Another huge advantage with the family trust, from my perspective, especially for your qualified small business corporation, is the ability to multiply your lifetime capital gains exemption or the, the lifetime capital gains exemption that applies for the business. So in the event of a sale, you know, let's assume mom and dad initially are the are the the shareholders of the the company. Well, we've got two lifetime capital gains exemptions. I think I think it's about eight hundred ninety two thousand dollars right now is the value. And so, really, the first eight hundred ninety two thousand dollars of sales proceeds is tax free to each of mom and dad. Let's call it roughly two million dollars can come out of the company tax free. Well, if we have a family trust and particularly a larger family. If we have as beneficiaries of that family trust, the children, let's say there's three children, let's say there's three grandchildren, we now have six more, or I guess we have individuals, each of which all have a lifetime capital gains exemption. And so if the value of that business grows from you know, $4 million to $10 million, it's possible that the vast majority of that value on the sale could actually flow to the family tax-free because each of those individuals' lifetime capital gains exemptions can be utilized. Now, of course, you have to count to those individuals, but generally speaking, if you ask the question, would you prefer to, to send the money to the CRA or give it to your grandchild? The answer is pretty obvious. So, you know, that's another Depends example. Depends on the family sometimes. <laughs> I, I suppose that's true. You know, that's a, an, another case where it's quite advantageous to use the family trust. Whereas if you, were, if you were giving shares to the individuals, you know, in that moment when you don't know what the growth will be for the company, you know, how do you divide those up? How many... How many shares do you give to your son who may be active in the business to some extent, or at least has expressed an interest in being active in the business? You know, how many shares do you give to your daughter? How many should you give to the grandchildren that are minors that you really haven't uh, had an opportunity to see? Will they be able to manage money? Those sorts of things. So the family trust, I think, is often the, the preferred method. I would agree. I mean, just the inherent flexibility in it is is just it's far superior to to just saying here it is outright. I mean, there's there is an, or an increased reporting and accounting burden that comes with it, but a minor one at that. 
But yeah, I mean, it's better having optionality is valuable. So let's talk about what happens when, say, you've established the estate freeze, and for whatever reason, you want to disown your kids or whatever it might be, and you want to undo the estate freeze. So what's involved with, with something like that? Yeah, it, you know, it's actually, um, I mean, first of all, it's quite common, and it's actually relatively easy. Now, when you get when you receive your accountant's bill or your lawyer's bill, you maybe won't think it was all that easy. But um, but practically speaking, it is quite simple. So one reason that the unwinding of the estate freeze comes about is because, as I'm sure you're aware, all trusts, or or at least most, well, I shouldn't say all trusts, the vast majority of trusts have a 21 year deemed disposition. So we do the we do the estate freeze. We've given the growth value to the family trust. 21 years. In the future, Revenue Canada, in essence, gives you one of two options. You can pay the taxes on the capital gains. The family trust can can pay the taxes, or it can roll the shares out to one of the beneficiaries, one or more of the beneficiaries. So it's not uncommon in families to see a freeze done maybe at least a couple of times during their lifetime. And so what, what often will happen is, you know, mom and dad will hit that 21-year mark, they'll be looking around and they'll be saying, look, I'm not quite ready to give up all the control or to transfer all of the shares into the hands of the children just yet. Let's redo this transaction. Let's redo the freeze and carry forward in that way. So what ends up happening is there's a bump up in the cost of the shares. Often the shares are rolled out to mom and dad. They redo the freeze and the process starts itself again. So that's one way in a sense where the freeze is, is undone. In other cases, you know, for whatever reason, there may just be a decision that we want to undo this freeze. Sometimes it's, it's actually a drop in the value of the business. So as an example, if you did the freeze and the value of the business was $6 million, COVID hits, there's a massive downturn, you could fairly revalue the business at say $3 million. What you can do is you can basically undo that freeze, set a new lower benchmark of $3 million for the freeze. And when the value of the business recovers back to the $6 million, you've actually eliminated capital gains on $3 million. So you've increased the value to the family by $750,000. So that's that's an, another instance where you're, you're sort of undoing a freeze, or some people call it a refreeze. You know, at the end of the day, really what you're doing is you're transferring the shares to one or more of the beneficiaries. And it's a relatively simple exercise. I and mean, there's a fair number of tax filings associated with, with all of this, but it's it's very common. And so, so that's one of the things that's nice about this. When you're thinking about an estate freeze, I always encourage families to think about it this way. Are you willing to bet that the value of your business is going to grow? And of course, nobody runs a business from the perspective of that it, you know, with the notion that there's just not going to be a return on that that hard work and that effort. And so most families say, yeah, I believe this business is going to grow. I believe that our family's net worth is going to grow. And so what they're doing is they're betting that this will work out, the business will work out, and they've found a way to minimize their taxes on, on their passing. If it turns out that they're wrong, they just unwind the freeze, give the common shares back to themselves and go on and go on with yep. things as they may happen to be. So relatively straightforward. Yeah, it's a key consideration. I mean, if the parents themselves are beneficiaries on the trust, that's a very easy backdoor to say, well, I'm taking this back. I've had enough of this. So so that's that's pretty straightforward. Now, on death, of course, then the normal estate planning process go, happens, right? So you basically would have the portion of the shares that are tax-free under the capital gains exemption and potentially a taxable portion. But there's other ways we can deal with a taxable portion throughout life. Can you explain the concept of a wasting freeze for, to us? Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's actually, it's actually very simple. At a high level, let's assume 
assume that the parents took $4 million of preferred shares. That was the value of the business on the freeze. What happens over time is that rather than taking dividends, just taking a straight dividend from the company, which is you know really the only way to take value from the company, what they're doing is they're selling their shares back to the company. And they're not allowed to do that at a capital gains rate. The Income Tax Act basically says, look, if you're, if you're redeeming shares, selling shares back to the company, that's taxed as a dividend. But what happens over time is, of course, let's assume that mom and dad sell $2 million of shares back to the company. When they pass, they no longer have that $2 million of shares in their hands. So what they've done is they've, re- they've reduced the capital gains at today's rates by $480,000. So it works quite well because... It's not something that you can practically do with common shares because the question is always, well, what's the value of those shares? No one has a continual ongoing valuation of their business. So once you've got that fixed value, you can quite conveniently redeem and and wither away those capital gains. So this, you know, typically what we're doing is we're stopping future capital gains and getting rid of some of the historical capital gains that have been built up in the estate. And so there's a there's kind of a you're winning on both ends, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, and I think you know, in cases where the freeze happens and there's an amount, especially in excess of the of the capital gains uh, exemption amount, a lot of clients I speak to, you know, they plan on taking a dividend income from the company for the rest of their lives, right? Like that's I've had clients say, "Look, I'll give the I'll give the company to my kids, but I'm going to take a dividend. I'm going to take I'm going to get a paycheck for the rest of my life." My response is, "No, you're not going to get a paycheck. We're going to freeze your shares. We're going to help you maintain control." But what we're going to do is we're going to redeem those shares every year instead of uh, because you're going to take a dividend. So it ends up being the same tax consequence. But now we've, you know, you're going to take the money anyway. Now we've eliminated the capital gain. So it's it, it can be a big win if, if planned for accordingly. So that's the here and now or kind of. Now I'm going to bring you back to the topic that I was originally going to bring you on the show for, which was Section 208. How does the misery that is the complications of that section of the act impact how an estate freeze would be approached at this point? That's a great question. And part, I have a bit of hesitancy in answering it because while Bill C-208 is law, it's not finalized. Revenue Canada has made it, made it clear or the Department of Finance has made it clear that, that they're, going to, they're going to propose amendments to Bill C-208. So there's still, yeah. a lot of, still a lot of uncertainty about it. What I like about Bill C-208 is that in a sense, there's maybe a recognition that business succession planning is a long-term exercise. Like you don't just wake up on a Monday morning and say, you know what, I'm going to give the company to my son. Typically, the family members have been involved in the business for, for a number of years. Often, they're not receiving any compensation for their participation in the business. And mom and dad often want to ensure and, sorry, I mean, you've touched on it. They want to be in control, but they also want to be confident that when they do surrender control, that the children are, are ready to actually run the business and, and, and run it well. And so the problem historically around succession planning was that there was a penalty if you happen to sell your shares to your children, right? It was treated as a dividend. It was a higher tax rate. Whereas if, if you disposed of the company and sold the shares to myself or to you, Jason, you pay at the capital gains rate and you'd have the ability to use that lifetime capital gains exemption. So what I see here is that with Bill C-208, ultimately what what we're going to be able to do is is facilitate transactions where there is actually a intergenerational transfer of the company shares and you will be able to utilize that lifetime capital gains exemption. So it does work in conjunction with an estate freeze. I just think in the moment, there's a lot of uncertainty around exactly how it will work because yeah. we know that the, that the Department of Finance is going to come in. They're going to, they're going to, to fiddle with the bill 
And of course, their concern is is surplus stripping. They don't want yeah. they don't want abuses of the Income Tax Act in order to to allow people to extract value at a non dividend tax rate at a capital gains rate. Yeah, and I covered this topic at nauseum with uh, with Kim Moody previously. For anyone who wants to check that out, bottom line, we covered all the surplus stripping reasons and whatnot. But I mean, what Bill C two A at its core is trying to correct for is an injustice that many of us perceive to be an injustice, which is that it is actually cheaper for a third party technically to buy your business than it is for your own family member. Because again, they can use after tax corporate dollars with no penalty. Whereas if a family member tries to use the money within the corp to buy back your shares, it's a deemed dividend, just like in the wasting free scenario we just gave you. So Bill C-208, once cleaned up, if still stays true to the actual spirit of what's trying to do would actually would actually maybe eliminate for that would, would allow that deemed dividend on a wasting freeze to actually become a capital gain. So there's a there's a big benefit there. So that is so I guess the, the word of caution on this is if you're doing an estate freeze in the next little while, if you were planning on doing it in the, in the last half of this year, maybe wait until they actually finish cleaning up this bill so that you know what the actual rules of the game are and you end up saving some legal dollars. But in the meantime, there's still plenty of estate freezes that will go forward without having to wait because they C-208 doesn't really impact it. So yeah, so it's uh, interesting times we live in. <laughs> it absolutely is. Chris, I thank you for this. Anything else anyone should be considering before they enter into an estate freeze or an important step we maybe over, overshot or didn't take much time on? My one observation about, about estate freezes, you know, especially when, when they're utilizing things like family trusts, is that Unfortunately, I think they're often looked at as an accounting exercise, oh. right? They're looked at from the perspective of, of, of how do we minimize tax? And I was actually speaking with a family the other day, you know, about this precise issue. And, and you know, at the end of the day, my advice to them was, look, at, when it comes to an estate freeze, I can give you a list a mile long of accountants and lawyers that can actually facilitate an estate freeze for you. It's actually not all that complex, right? I mean, at the end of the day, oh. we've got a business valuation, we've got a share swap. The question is professionals that are that are assisting you, do they understand all of the potential complications that can come about in these types of, of scenarios? You know, when it comes to things like business succession, when it comes to control issues, when it ensures that at the end of the day, other than just saving tax, the estate freeze meets the goals and objectives of the family. That's where the art comes into this. And I suppose, you know, you touched on it really, really at the outset. Are you working with somebody that can translate this from legalese, which is which is always problematic, to something that's that's really plain and simple? Like, do you understand the end result and how how all of this is going to work? Because it's not uncommon to see issues like a child's spouse being included as a beneficiary. And they're thinking about it from the perspective of, well, there's one more lifetime capital gains exemption. Well, what happens when the divorce happens? But you got to uh, say it's the current spouse of said person, not <laughs> name them. There's, there's tricks around that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, there, there absolutely is. But and I'm sure you've seen this in, in your career. You know, how many times do you come across these sorts of plans that really weren't well thought out. You know, what about the need to make amendments in the future? How do we avoid specific demands for value from the family trusted at various points in time? You know, what happens when mom and dad wither away their preferred shares? You know, are there are there some skinny voting shares that really have no value but ensure that mom and dad are actually in control of the company so they can decide who the directors and officers will be? You know, it's great if mom and dad are in control of the the trust, but are they still in control of the company? So I think there's a bit of an art to the to these things. You know, absolutely vast majority of accountants and, and lawyers can get it done for you, but it's those broader, what I would consider sort of estate planning, business succession planning issues that that are worth watching out for because this is a significant transaction at the end of the day. Absolutely. And 
I would also say, you know, to go back to your point, an estate freeze is simply an accounting strategy. It's not go back to what you said previously about, you know, this is looked at primarily through the lens of taxation. And of course, that is one of the big upsides of this, but this is not a taxation exercise at its core. This is a financial planning exercise. This is a family dynamics exercise. This is an entrepreneurial succession planning exercise. And it's like anything else. I think too often we confuse the thing that we deliver with the actual process. And the process should be far more encompassing to make sure that, hey, this is this is a thing we did that is going to be successful because of all these other considerations we took. Not this is a thing we did because, hey, my account said I need to do that, so I did it, so let's move on. Right? Like It's those kind of, let's not take the time and consideration executions that lead to the real big problems. Yeah, absolutely. So, and then, you know, the other piece too is often, and here I'm thinking about, about things from the perspective of the lawyer. And what I find is that often the professionals that we engage, they think about things with their particular lens. So, you know, as an example, if you go to your accountant and say, look, I want to do an estate freeze, they're going to say, great idea. Absolutely. Let's lock the government out of future growth. Let's do the withering. Let's eliminate capital gains in the future. But if if, if the client was, were to say, well, look, you know, my lawyer is also talking about something like a joint spousal trust. The accountant's typically going to look at it and say, well, look, you're not going to save any taxes. So why would you do that? Whereas the lawyer's thinking about things from the from right. perspective of, of protecting assets. And so it's, whether you're working with a firm like Macmillan that has brought all these people in house, or you're working with sort of your own trusted advisors. And generally speaking, I would encourage that, right? You want your, your accountant that you've worked with historically and that you plan to work with in the future to be involved in the process because they need to understand what's happening and why they're going to have to look after your filings. They're going to have to keep the plan on track, but you need to identify other professionals that have a complementary skill set so that you understand all of the options, you know, things like maybe moving your preferred shares into a joint spousal trust to help protect, protect that value from other risks, you know, those, those sorts of things. So there is a team that needs to be brought to bear here. Excellent. Chris, thank you very much for taking the time to go through all this. Where can people find you? Well, uh, obviously they can find us on the web, uh, mcmillanestateplanning.com. And our main office is, is here in Calgary, but we do operate throughout Canada. So any questions, we're always happy to set up a, a complimentary consultation with, uh, with the prospective family. Excellent. Thank you very much. And thank you for taking the time to join us yet again for Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. I hope you enjoyed this more of a kind of deep dive into the steps of estate freezes and uh, took something away from this and that something should always be get the right advice. You can pay for legal advice or you can pay for good legal advice. And there's a very big difference between the two. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you. 